Welcome to episode 374 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we feature a conversation with writer Richard Klin. We discuss his new novel titled Wonders of the Distant Land, and uh, we get into some social issues as they are unfolding at present. Uh, We have a very insightful, very uh, creative and earnest discourse with Mr. Klin. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. We also feature an essay as read by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise. The essay is written by Carolyn Knapp. It's titled, On Loneliness. We also have an EWSA titled Pigment and a poem called Ali. And of course, all of this will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 374 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Angels come to paint the desert nightly When the moon is gleaming brightly Along the Santa Fe Trail Stardust scattered all along the highway Rainbow-colored skyway Along the Santa Fe Trail Beside you I'm riding every hill and dale While shadows hide you Just like a pretty purple veil Thereby hangs a tale I found you In the mountains that surround you Are the walls I've built around you Along the Santa Fe Trail Beside you, I'm riding every hill and dale while shadows hide you. Just like a pretty purple veil, thereby hangs a tale I found you. And the mountains that surround you are the walls that I've built around you. Along the Santa Fe Trail, 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 da 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 da
pigment. It's hot and summer has yet to arrive. I know I am here, though it is difficult to understand who I am as I try to make sense of this sham. Born into a good life, most of my ancestors having experienced the human struggle that corresponds with being poor or in the lower middle of socioeconomics. Both sides, as much as I've heard, with the pronounced proclivity to push back against the herd. This characteristic can be very useful when the compulsion to be true to your heart and soul arises. But I believe we would all agree such a way does too put one out in the open, often alone in the foray. My complexion is not white as a clear day of light, and it is not as black as an unlit night, despite those shining constellations. I feel as if I am complicit in the uniquely unjust trials and tribulations that are without permission attached to my brothers and sisters of darker pigment than me. Simply because of a physical adaptation to the power of our sun. Geography. Location, location, location. A history of prideful sins against humanity, weaving an overwhelming web of sorrow, pain, loss, and trepidation. And we try still, I hope, to do good by each other, even though many of us can never truly understand. Speaking truth to power and love deeply unleashed from within as the means to transcend ignorance and hate. Yet alas, perhaps yet again, oversimplifying our complicated human fate, which teems unwitheringly innate, prostrate in worship of control and subtle movements to dominate.
Hello, Richard Klin. Is Hello, Mr. Muir. How are you? Good, good. It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours yet again. Thank you for having me again, too. A lot has happened since the last time we spoke. Oh, my Lord. That's pandemic. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The pandemic, uh, civil unrest. All those things, yeah. Yeah. And a new novel. And a new novel, yes. This is in order of importance. Um, a new novel. <laughs> and a new novel just completed, actually. Um, I just finished it a little while ago. So you guys sort of have an exclusive scoop here. I've never talked about it publicly before, but it's called Wonders of the Distant Land. And it's a Holocaust themed novel set in the 1950s. And. You know, but I'll, so much to say about it. I don't know if I should just natter on and on about it. Um, but, you know, I wrote it not with the idea of writing a rebuttal, but I've been sort of troubled by Holocaust narratives. When, when ho the Holocaust appears in fiction, um, there's sort of often a moral imperative. There's often sort of the characters are saint-like. And I wanted to show something more realistic. Uh, the novel is very loosely, loosely based on my own family's experience. And I, and I thought that fictional narratives just aren't accurate, you know, and, and it's a tremendously difficult endeavor to render the Holocaust in fiction. Um, it's the hugest, hugest event, but a lot of the survivors, their experiences were in miniature, lacking often a coherent narrative. So part of this, again, I don't want it to be like it's a rebuttal, but in some ways it is. I want it to show a sort of more accurate fictional portrayal of the survivor's narrative. Um, there isn't a beginning, a middle, and an end. The narratives are often disconnected, and there's no moral imperative. Um, some of the characters I've written are not so admirable, some are quasi-criminal. You know, I think it's a myth that suffering makes you nicer. So I, I think all those things went into the making of this novel. It's a myth that suffering makes you nicer. I like that. Yeah, I mean, it can, it can make you nicer, but I'm just sort of getting slightly distressed over the years. Um, almost like the Holocaust, the survivors have to be rendered as saints for us to have sympathy for them. You know, how about the non-saints? You know, in some ways that sort of amplifies the horror in a way. Um, so that, that was a factor of it also too. Um, it's just not realistic to think that that horrible suffering makes you a nicer person. I think it, it's just the opposite in a lot of situations. Yeah, and, and in a way too, it, it seems unfair or very uh, shallow for anybody who is, for whatever reason, they feel they need to judge uh, what a survivor is all about and what they experienced, to only give them compassion if if that person is is uh, um, to them appealing in some way. You know, like you said, yeah. a, a saint or a hero. Otherwise, they don't deserve any compassion. Yeah, it's almost like qualified sympathy in a way. But I mean, and it doesn't apply just to Holocaust survivors, obviously. But I mean, anybody who's been through some kind of mass catastrophe and often isn't very nice. Can we sympathize with them in that respect? You know? I mean, oh, definitely. So. I, yeah. I mean, I even, and I don't know anything about this gentleman, 
God rest his soul. But I hear what people say about George Floyd, you know, when they're trying right. to justify, well, why do you why are you giving this guy so much attention? He was this. He was that. And they, of course, refer to negative things. And again, that stuff has been unsubstantiated as far as I understand. But people go there like as if even if he were this or that, what happened is, is, is then OK. It's not. A big That's deal. exactly. Oh, that's what I thought about, too. You know, I think that whatever he did, I think the charges are probably nonsense. But let's say the worst case scenario, he tried to pass a 20, a fake $20 bill. Is the punishment for that, assuming that is the case, which I don't assume, public execution? You know, so it's like even the worst case scenario that he was a crook, which, again, I, I don't think he was. You know, how is that possibly justified? You know, a public brutal execution you know so you're right it doesn't matter what kind of person he was it's so unacceptable so brutal so hideous you know the the kind of person he was is not consequential no by the way folks we're talking to writer richard clinn um and he's been on the show before he has several books published among among articles he's been published in magazines such as the atlantic uh we talked with him uh, a while back, yeah, it might have been, it's over a year for sure. Uh, it's over a year. Yeah, it, it was it over a year for sure, yeah. And uh, that was when you had um, your novel right before this one published, The Petroleum Transfer Engineer. Uh, yes, yeah, quite, quite a different subject matter. It was set at the Jersey Shore in the early 80s, not exactly as fraught with global impact as a Holocaust novel, but still, you know, but still pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah. In its own way, it's heavy. And, uh, you, uh, are you adapting that into a screenplay? I understand. I did. Yeah. Petroleum transfer engineer has been adapted into a screenplay. It actually got a sort of favorable nod at last year's garden state film festival. So I'm still sort of pitching it. Um, this, the new novel has taken up sort of most of my energy, but there is a screenplay out there in case anybody's interested um i think it's, it's very picturesque the teeming jersey shore of the early 80s i'm partial to saying that of course but you know so. that's where you live right I, I grew up at the jersey shore um i i've been living in new york forever and ever but i was raised at the shore okay. and i think it's a fascinating canvas for fiction um so. yeah are you um are you living in uh the uh metropolitan area of new york city or are you upstate i was a new york city a new york city resident for years and years and years we now live in the hudson valley which has been we live on around six acres which has been a godsend um during the COVID 19 epidemic i have to say it's been a real sort of refuge um so i'm very thankful for where we live now we're in the country um and it's just sort of we feel somewhat sequestered from all the awfulness that's going on um, yeah yeah, we're we're privileged, right? We're fortunate for sure. My, you know, I live in a oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I mean, the difficulty there's difficulty, there's fear, but you know, we're healthy, we're sequestered. It's like we are. I, you know, I'm very grateful. I have to say, very very grateful. I know at least based on our uh, Facebook friendship, um, uh, you have a wife and a daughter. Yes, I have a wife and a daughter. Uh, our daughter is 15 and a serious singer and musician. Um, that's a little plug also, too, um, who's been making in concert, doing music performances, all online now. So it's a very weird dynamic. She <laughs> appeared um, at a showcase at the Bitter End Club in New York City. Oh, was excellent. Fam famous club. 
famous club they're done through zoom so it's a strange brave new world i find um definitely brave new world for me i think it's sort of more easier to ascertain if you're younger but um i find the whole thing sort of odd <laughs> i can't think of any other word for it Even, yeah yeah so it's but yeah so it's been it's been a challenge the music biz seems to have adapted very well you know everybody seems to have gone straight online so i just hope it doesn't continue when this is all over you know so yeah me as well me as well now, i'm 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 asking you about your family today going back to your your most recent novel wonders of a distant land you say it's yeah. loosely based on your family history is this the your uh, paternal or, ma or maternal side or both it's based on my maternal side, um, even though actually both my parents were Holocaust survivors. I've taken very, very loosely my mother's side of the family. And again, I have to reiterate, it's, it's a fictional rendering. You know, it's not a documentary recollection. You know, there are various, there's one of the characters in the novel um, is the co-owner of a cab company that, that doesn't exist. You know, I mean, it, it's not my family's chronicle, but I took just for the sake of making this more contained, I took my mother's side of the story who had survived the Holocaust in Poland um, and took that and made it fictional. And again, I want to, you know, insist this is not my family tale. You know, it's a fictional rendition. It's very, very based on what they went through, but you know, it's, it's not their story. Um, but I took it as inspiration. So. And your mother must've been pretty young. Yeah, she was, a, a child he was a child when the war ended she doesn't really appear in the novel you know it's more the the older sort of the older relatives and the experience um it mostly I, I mostly took the experience of what they went through those particulars are basically true they were hidden in a barn um i think again you know to render all this in fiction is is hugely difficult for so many different reasons i mean i avoided it for years and years. And one reason is, you know, there's definitely something very emotionally difficult about it. Um, the other thing is that something, it's a sort of maddening paradox in literature that a really huge event doesn't necessarily translate into fiction. And I think when I would listen to, say, my grandmother's Holocaust narrative, um, there was no linear sense. Things didn't make, there was no beginning, middle, and end. There were things you had to surmise, there were things you had to guess, there were details that were left out. So that I wanted to capture, you know, that often doesn't make it into fiction. The narratives are disconnected. They're sometimes colored by personal experience, they're colored by guilt, but there's rarely a chronological, it doesn't make sense. Like the in real life, when I would listen to my grandparents, um, the stories came out of nowhere. There was no connection. You know, I know um, I have this in the novel. In real life, they were, their part of Poland was taken over by Russia in 1939. And then in 1941, when Russia and Germany went to war, when the Soviet Union went to war with Germany, then the Germans came in. I'm only telling you this now after decades, you know, I don't think my family ever said in 1939, we were under Russian rule and then in 41 German rule. It was never that specific. At some point, there were the Russians. At some point, there were the Germans. You know, it, it all feels very hazy. And I think that's what I wanted to try to um, sort of delineate in a way. You know, it never, there's a beginning and middle and end to my family's history, but I never heard it that way. There was never 
we were under German rule and then this happened. It's all very, it's fuzzy. It's fuzzy and sort of surreal. So, um, Richard, did you want to delineate, as you said, uh, this fuzziness? Because um, to, to what end? You wanted to show everybody that indeed it is fuzzy or that you wanted to yeah. make it less fuzzy? I wanted to make it more fuzzy in a really strange way. I guess I wanted to show... Um, a sort of different aspect of the Holocaust that in some ways there is a real mystical element to it. And we think of mysticism as something wonderful, but there's evil mysticism too. And I think there's sort of a surreal aspect. If you really boil it down, the Holocaust is surreal, you know, everybody disappears. And I think that also follows up with the idea that there is sort of a, a grandeur going on, with the destruction of European Jewry, but my family's story is scurrying. You know, there's sort of an unawareness that all this is going on. It's a total study in miniature. You run here, and then you run there, and then this happens, and this happens. It's all very small and confused in a lot of ways, and I think I wanted, I wanted to show that. You know, again, there's a part of me that has taken some objection to the things I mentioned earlier, sort of the Holocaust is a great moral tale i don't think that's true and i think in some ways it makes for not so great writing i think this is i would hope you know sort of a more powerful narrative in a way there's no philosophical discourse there's no great conclusion you know um in real life you know my grandparents they thought long and hard about how they suffered. Of course they did. They had no philosophical insight. You know, there were no philosophical ruminations. My grandmother, who had suffered horribly, couldn't tell you why it happened to her. She couldn't tell you the nature of God and suffering. You know, I mean, there was there was none of that. And I think there's a part of me that, you know, quite frankly, has taken some objection to sort of the Elie Wiesel portrayal, you know, where you sort of are filled with insightful, soulful ruminations. I wish that was the case, but I've always felt that was a distortion. You know, I think that, you know, I wanted to show a more realistic, again, fictional rendition of there's no moral, you know, lesson in, in my novel, you know, except the lesson of how horrible it is to treat people in a certain way. But, you know, the characters... You're not going to know anything about the nature of suffering when you finish my novel, you know. Um, and and I guess in a way that could be to say, you know, don't try to find anything good here. There's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing good here, and accept that we we have the capability of doing brutal things, and there's and there's no good that come out of them sometimes none yeah exactly except the good that these characters you know they live another day they function they work they quarrel they do whatever you know that's the ultimate triumph but in terms of a rubric or a statement you know you'll get none of that um so i, I wanted to you know i wanted to show that and i guess I, you know i don't want it to be um an exercise in refutation, you know, it's a novel and there's a plot and there's humor and it's set in the 50s and one of the characters is a teenager, so there's the teenage 50s things of rock and roll. So I don't want it to be like an eat your peas kind of novel in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the sort of fine line I was walking. You know, it, I don't want it to be, it's not a refutation, but at the same point, it is sort of a refutation. Um, it has to be entertaining. You know, it's a novel. It, I didn't want it to be a recitation of 200 pages of massacres, you know. So it's a very 
fine line. And there is that element in fiction of just because it happened doesn't make it great literature. And I think that's this maddening but intriguing challenge in a way. You know, just because an incident happened doesn't make it readable fiction. But so I think that. But your book is great literature and readable fiction. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that was that was the challenge, and you know you can't you you can't have just a recitation of one atrocity after another. That doesn't make it fiction, but you can't not have that either. You know, I mean, a novel has to be readable. So in in some ways, it, it's a big big combination of lots of different things. So I hope I fashioned a readable, interesting novel, but you can't, you know, it can't be pages and pages of massacres. But then, of course, you can't just, you know, you can't just erase it either. You know, those are the chronicles. Um, I think, you know, for what I did, I don't know if you know Philip Roth's American Pastoral novel. Um, I do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the chronicle of this person named Swede, nicknamed Swede. And his rise in Jersey City, I guess, from the 30s to the 60s. But what I found really fascinating about that book is that it's Roth's alter ego, Nathan Zuckerman, who at the beginning of the novel is imagining Swede's life. I think people forget that. And nothing surreal happens in the novel. Nothing. It's not strange. It's not magic realism. But there is that feeling that this is... Zuckerman imagining Swede's life. There's sort of the patina of unreality. And I think that's what I wanted to show. There's nothing surreal. You know, it's not like angels suddenly appear, but I wanted throughout just the, a dollop of unreality. You know, there's something just slightly, slightly surreal about the whole endeavor. You know, people disappear, people come back. So I think that was sort of my fictional guidepost in a way, um, that it's all slightly odd. And I think that was very important for the construction of the novel. Now, Richard, when you when you uh, look at the novels you've written, I guess uh, based on what I know of you over my, through mm -hmm. my research over the years, I, I, I believe maybe this is your fourth. I wrote two nonfiction books. Um, it's my fourth book. The novel that came out, Petroleum Transfer Engineer, was my first novel. I've written, um, actually collaborated with my wife, Lily Prince, who's a painter and photographer. We did a book called Something to Say, where we profiled various artists about art and politics. Um, the whole gamut of art from, we interviewed Howard Zinn and a painter and a punk musician, and we just tried to do the whole gamut of various art making. Lily took the photos, and we did um, a book called Abstract Expressionism for Beginners, which is part of a series, the For Beginners series, where I wrote about the Abex painters, deleted the illustrations. So those are two nonfiction books, and this is my second novel. So yeah, and uh, you know, I'm I'm wondering if you find yourself uh, drawn to a certain place or things uh, that are, are uh, propelling you to to actually delve in and, and write fiction. Uh, these things are the same sort of things. Do, do, do you, are you finding that? I think well, it's more the, I mean, the canvases are different. The books, I hope, are different. But I think with fiction, you know, my my work is not totally rooted in the past, but at the moment it, it sort of is. And there's this desire to recreate a world in fiction, of course. You know, I mean, the the Jersey Shore that I wrote about is not 
you know, it's not accurate. It's a story. It's fiction. You know, it's not my life. Um, it doesn't make sense geographically in a way. You know, I've reimagined it. But I think there is, and with this book too, um, Wonders of the Distant Land, it's set in a Midwestern city in the 50s. And there's just something just so compelling to me about sort of creating all that. Not that it's not difficult, but you're sort of, it's sort of godlike in a way. Like I've constructed a city from the 1950s. You know, I've constructed my own version of the Jersey Shore. You know, I think there's a real, that's a real impetus, I think. Um, is it because you're not happy with the world you're living in? Or is it just because you're I, you're just I, so compelled as an artist, you have all these energies, you need to put them somewhere? I, yeah, I think for whatever reason, my, you know, the fictional energies lead toward the past at the moment. Um, I guess because it's a story that, that does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's sort of a sealed book in a way. Like, I'm not sure, you know, not that I want to write about the past forever, but there's something very compelling about that, and I'm not even sure why. It's almost like a riff you respond to or a song you respond to. It's just something very, those loci, there's something about it that I feel I need to tell. Um, and maybe there is something like slightly, you know, I always sort of ask myself, what's the why of a book? Mm -hmm. Why W? And I think that there's a specific story nobody else can tell. You know, for this novel, there are lots and lots of Holocaust novels. There are lots of novels set in the Midwest. There are lots of novels set in the 1950s. But I guess I felt this is my way to, this is the why. This is specific. You're looking at a specific street I've created and specific characters and specific dilemmas. So I think at the moment that's where my creative energies are going. Um, not that I wouldn't want to write a novel about the present, um, but there is part of it. You know, part of it is also taking refuge in the past, even though I describe some really awful things. But in some ways, it's it's easier to fashion a novel in the past for me. I'm not sure why that is, but it just just is. I uh, yeah. Who knows why? I mean. I could surmise that you have references that you can rely on more so because the things have occurred. Yeah. I think that's exactly it. I think it's it sort of, it's more codified in a way. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm not sure why. I mean, I've never tried to set a novel in the present. Um, yeah, I, I guess I feel I have more control over the past. There are certain touchstones I want to incorporate. Um, the present seems like a big sort of frightening hodgepodge <laughs> as opposed to the past. It feels like a frightening hodgepodge that already happened. You know? Right. Um, right. Yeah. It's a, it's a still photo, you know, in a right. way. Exactly. Right. There's the element of detachment also too, you know? Um, and I think the present is scary, you know, it's like, it's, sort of frightening who wants to think about the present i live here you know in the present well and uh, yeah we might as well go there i, I mean, you are a well-read individual there's no doubt about it uh that's part part of who you are and part of what you do uh so given all that you as a person uh who has that kind of experience when you're looking at today do you think the human way the human experience is has altered much as long, you know, as, as much as we know about it? I think people are always people. There's sort of a recognizable type. Um, I think the American political scene, Trump, you know, these are well-worn, 
you know, despotism is sort of, <laughs> it's well-worn. Um, I, I think there's something extra virulent about what we're going through right now, extra horrible. I mean, specifically this year in 2020, you know, I think it has its own extra awfulness. I guess maybe, you know, I never quite teased this out in my own head, but I guess I'm not sure what to make of what's going on now, which is maybe what, you know, what what's appealing about writing about the past. You know, you can sort of codify it in fiction, at least a little bit, you know. I mean, I would never presume to codify the Holocaust, but in my own little way, I've done it, or dilemmas of the Jersey Shore, but I guess I'm not sure what what this is, you know, what what is this era we're living in? Is it right before the dawn of something wonderful? Is it the sort of little hiccup before things get, you know, is it pre-Civil War, you know? So I think there's that feeling of, I don't know what I'm writing about in a way. Um, I think that's that's an issue. I mean, it seems just incredibly horrible at the moment, you know, um, with COVID-19 and sort of armed bands of right-wing vigilantes but so but what is this you know we don't know is it right before the dawn of a new era or is it you know the complete beginning of the end so i think there's that feeling of a probably a different kind of writer could be prophetic but i'm not at all i'm like the anti-prophetic writer you know i think that that's a part of it you know i can't i don't know what the zeitgeist is at all i have no idea so i think that you have to sort of have a handle on that which i don't well, maybe by the next time we speak, we will. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, it's a pleasure. Definitely. It's a pleasure always talking with you. Oh, Richard. I really enjoyed being here. Thank you so much for having me. I you, appreciate it. You make it easy. You make it easy. You have so much to offer. Now, your latest novel is Wonders of a Distant Land, and it's available. It's not. I just finished it. It's called Wonders of the Distant Land. The Distant Land. See, I, the title's so new, I, we're, not, we're, we're not even I, sure. Wonders of the Distant Land. Um, I just finished it. I'd be happy to, you know, here's an ad. Uh, <laughs> go, go. Yes, like please. Any publisher, it's, it's available. You know, I, I feel like this is like a dating site, you know, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's brand new. It, it wants to go steady with you, you know, it's ready to... <laughs> I'm here to talk it up, you know. It's like it's just dying for a date, you know. Um, so. Well, we, you know, we we look forward to hearing when. Let us know, and we'll share it with the listeners. Uh, and if people want to try to keep track on their own of what you're doing, they could just look. You have a website, right? Website uh, www.richardklin.com. Very bare bones website. I have no tech skills whatsoever. No tech skills, no ascertaining the zeitgeist, but please, you know, take a look and, you know, I would appreciate any interest, you know, happy to hear from anybody. And I really appreciate you having me too. Oh, it's a pleasure. Take care and uh, all of our best to you and your family. Thank you so much. Stay healthy. You Bye. too. Bye. the clouds why won't anybody listen to me don't make
make me say it again out loud Big star doing don't worry baby Bipolar pride swimming the tide Keep your dead head above and your chin up You're gonna have a pretty hard time Without drugs, without love Total submission, I've seen a vision Everyone's screaming, I've been daydreaming Sorry I'm fishing, without permission Tell her I'm missing, in a serpentine prison Try to connect the dots anymore Let them go, they're gonna do it on their own Tell me that I'm not in this alone And I'm so sorry, I don't know why I'm slow I feel like an impersonation of you Or am I doing another version of you doing me? Nobody's ever really thinking about as much as we want them to be Total frustration, deterioration Nationalism, another moon mission Total submission, I've seen a vision Call electrician, serpentine prison Whatever it is, I try not to listen Cold cynicism and blind nihilism Vacation from intoxication. Tell her I'm missing in a serpentine prison. I've been picking my kid up from school, smelling like Girl Scout cookies and drool. I still crawl up to you every night. Do not forgive me, I'm a reptile You say I'm a lot, I'm hard to take I think you're just drinking the water I walk into walls and I lay awake I don't want to give it to my daughter Total submission, I've seen a vision Everyone's screaming, I've been daydreaming Sorry I'm fishing without permission Tell her I'm missing in a serpentine prison Total frustration, deterioration Nationalism, another moon mission Total submission, I've seen a vision Call electrician, serpentine prison Without permission, tell her I'm missing a 
From On Loneliness, by Carolyn Knapp, published in her essay collection, The Merry Recluse, A Life in Essays. There are many brands of loneliness. There's the loneliness of disconnection, which hits when you find yourself standing at a party with no one to talk to. There's the loneliness of yearning, which comes when you miss someone you love. There's the loneliness of isolation, the product of too many consecutive hours or days without human contact. But the kind of loneliness I know best is the Sunday morning variety, a form that seems to bubble up from deep inside, often without warning or good cause. When it hits, it feels big and permanent and insurmountable. If you could shop for loneliness in the grocery store, you'd see the Sunday brand packaged in a huge box with a label Warning, industrial strength. This is more than a sad feeling. It's a scary feeling. To me, loneliness has always seemed a baby step away from depression, and I react to it warily, the way you might react to a snake or a spider. The fear is that if I allow a bout of loneliness to persist for too long, six hours, a day, several days, it will fester and grow, mutate into a paralyzing despair. Get too lonely, and you won't get out. You'll fall into the abyss. For this reason, I spent much of my adult life trying to outrun the feeling, busying myself, filling up the schedule, holding on to bad relationships. I've tried drinking loneliness away, exercising and shopping it away, scouring it away in fits of house cleaning. I've also had some success with all these strategies, particularly the one involving bad men. There's nothing quite so distracting as an obsessive love affair, and if a sour romance makes you lonely, well, at least you can blame the feeling on someone else. The emptiness, for me, comes from inside. It has to do with not knowing what it is I need in order to feel connected contented or secure, safe in my own skin. If I listen closely, that running commentary in my head asks big, scary questions. Who is this person, making coffee and washing a dish? What gives her pleasure in life, joy and delight? What might turn a frightening, empty stretch of time into a comforting, satisfied stretch of time? Those are difficult questions, and in trying to outrun loneliness, I've shied away from the opportunity to answer them. Mind you, a periodic dose of distraction isn't always a bad thing. I, for one, can hardly attest to the healing power of new shoes. But dodging the bigger questions always backfires in the end. When I race around blowing money on things I don't need, all I usually do is reinforce my sense of myself as essentially incompetent, unable to do something as basic is plan a simple Sunday. So that day, I sat for a bit, then dragged myself up off the sofa and attacked a project. I made and hung a pair of curtains I'd been meaning to make for months. 
It was a simple pleasure, a job undertaken for its own sake, but it reminded me of several things, that I do have resources to combat despair, that I am capable of occupying my own time, tending to my own soul, that when it strikes, loneliness may actually have something to teach us. The day passed from there, a solitary Sunday, but not, in the end, a lonely one. Up, it was four in the morning, clear as all hell that you'd already gone. Gone, gone. You know it's that dear, you know I hate to disappear, but the days are short and the nights are getting long. Set 
dear, you know I hate to disappear But the days are short and the nights are getting long And I just mean to tell you that I don't want to be let down Get lost in the crowd See the whole scene Say what you Ali. The allure of those trenchant souls like Betsy DeVos perplexes me so. A bit of words from Muhammad Ali and the eyes and ears of Brooklyn's Spike Lee. Then you will know where we come from and how to transcend our limiting ends so prevalent today. Can you dig it? Sway. I can hear the music play.
And there you have it, episode 374 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, writer Richard Klin, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, another writer, Carolyn Knapp, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, M. Ward, Babatunde Olutunji, Matt Berenger, Laura Marking, Public Enemy, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And I'd like to thank you. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to do our best with this time. Take care.